This week, I've got two very professional podcasters here that I listen to every week. And if you don't already, then I recommend you go and download ATP, my favorite tech show. So uh, Casey Liss has been here before. Hi, Casey. Hello. Thanks for having me back. And last thing we were talking about your new YouTube project, which I've been excited to follow along with, Casey on Cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's slowed down a little bit because of the holidays. I have a couple of episodes worth of video in the can, and I have done approximately four minutes of editing on either of those videos. <laughs> so I need to uh, I need to find the time at the very least once the holidays clear out to uh, really get cranking on that stuff. And then I've also got Marco Armand, also from ATP, who has um, done lots of things. I also, I recommend Overcast to everyone I talk to. When they say they listen to the show on Spotify, I'm always a little disappointed, and I try to point them towards <laughs> Overcast. Thank you very much. But you've been doing the same uh, in a different direction. You've been talking about tech, but you did a few videos recently when you got the uh, latest Apple products. Thank you. Unfortunately, cases are way better. <laughs> Well, I think we we could have an argument about that. Actually, I would love to hear that argument, but that's why I wanted to bring you guys on. So there was this great, actually, I didn't write down the episode number, but recently you guys had a great discussion on ATP about some of those challenges of getting a YouTube channel up and running, both in terms of you know the gear that you actually need, what's actually useful as you start, how do you create a set, how do you record audio properly, and I, I thought you guys would both be just the right people to talk to about both how you overcame those things so far and what you're still looking to do in the future. Yeah, I think it's been funny because from my perspective, and I'd be curious to hear both of your thoughts on this, I I feel like I have been doing the let me spend as little money as I possibly can because I don't know if this is going to play out and get enough equipment so that I'm not embarrassed, but not go like way into the deep end with the hyper-professional equipment. And from my perspective, Marco is not way in the deep end with the hyper-professional equipment, but Marco has been far more willing to open his pocketbook and, uh, and and spend a little money on this. And so I think one of the more interesting comparisons between the two of us is the equipment we've chosen. And additionally, I think the venue by which we're doing these, what are ultimately product reviews for both of us, are so very different because for me, I am typically outdoors, oftentimes in a moving vehicle, which has all sorts of associated problems. Whereas I think Marco, by comparison, has a lot more control over his filming world, if you will. And so even though we are both, you know, kind of blindly trying to find our way through YouTube, and I apologize for lumping you in with that, Marco, but I think you'll agree with me there. Yeah, pretty much. Um, me, me too. We're all, we're all blind in this game, but... Well, but the difference is you, you at least have some sort of spectacles on, if I can really murder this analogy. And so you, you, you seem to have a lot more uh, knowledge as to where, where you need to walk than, than the two of us do. But nevertheless, I think that's also kind of interesting is that, you know, the, the, not only the equipment we've chosen, but also, you know, we, we're nevertheless still walking a very similar path of just kind of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. I don't know. Is that fair, Marco? Or am I, am I really under or overselling either of us? No, that is pretty much it. I mean, just like kind of at a, at, a, at a slightly stepping back higher level for a minute. The biggest challenge for YouTube for me at this point in like my my online public career is that the other things I do in public right now, I'm pretty good at. Like I, I have a lot of experience and I've been doing them for a long time. So like, you know, I'm pretty good at making podcasts by now. I'm pretty good at making my iPhone app. You know, I, I know this sounds really braggy, but I'm, I'm getting to a point here. <laughs> I, I, I'm okay at blogging when I occasionally do that. But I'm terrible at making videos because I've just never done it before. I have no expertise. I have very little experience. I have no training, really. And so 
it's hard for me when I'm when I'm otherwise putting out stuff that's in my comfort zone. That is stuff that I you know skills I built up over a long time. It's really hard for me to suck at something that I'm doing yeah, very publicly. Yeah. No, I, I can absolutely sympathize with that. I mean, I even find uh, another path that can go down is that as you succeed more, even in the field that you're talking about. So for me, doing videos now. I still have more and more anxiety as I find more success about each upcoming video because now it's like, oh, now it really <laughs> needs to be good. Now I can't put out a bad one. And um, so a bit of a, a release valve for that has been being able to post to Instagram stories because on stories, it's just experimental. Nobody has any expectations. And so if I have some crazy bad idea, that's the one place where, okay, I can still fall down and make mistakes. But then I can also build up this anxiety about it needs to be whatever, you know, whatever, whatever I'm building up in my head about what people might expect out of me. But it, it's funny. It's like, it, it, it creates this struggle, whatever level you're at that I, I don't know if it ever goes away. I'm hoping someday I, <laughs> I can kind of find my way past it. But, but a bigger question, if we go one step back is for both of you, why did you feel like getting into YouTube? I mean, obviously podcasts have worked great. I have said before that I think podcasts are the better format. Like I like podcasts more. I get more information out of them. I get more value out of them. But for you guys, why do you want to explore video? You know, I think it's probably a little different for the two of us. Maybe similar in some ways, but pretty different in a lot of other ways. When it comes to podcasts, I've been doing, you know, I've been a podcaster for a long time and you could make a very solid argument that that is the pretty much the entirety of my job these days. But coincidentally, I guess I'm a bit of a podcasting diva because I've never actually sat behind like GarageBand or Logic and, and edited a show. I've just never needed to. My co-host, in this case, Marco or uh, Mike, when I'm on Analog, they will always be the ones doing the edit. And so for me, I think doing video was to some degree finding an excuse to to see that side of creation, you know, more than just showing up and talking or showing up and standing in front of a, of a camera and, and, you know, talking. It was for me a way to kind of explore that creativity. And, and one of the things that, that I love so much about doing ATP is that Marco takes an incredible amount of time to really put a thorough edit into the show. But what makes Marco so good at it is that it doesn't sound more often than not like a lot of editing has been done. It's just that I can tell, having been part of the recording, that you know a lot of editing has been done to really clean everything up and make us sound a lot smarter than maybe we really are. <laughs> and I never get to experience that. I only get to show up and talk. And I, and I don't mean that to sound, I'm not complaining. It's just an observation that for me, it was really great, or it has been really great so far, to learn what it's like to be on the other side of the desk, if you will, and to learn what it's like to do an edit because it's so unfamiliar to me. And I think that that's probably to some degree applicable to, to Marco, and, and I'll shut up and let you talk here in a second, but, <laughs> but, I, but you have a lot more experience with the editing side of this stuff than I do. And so I suspect you're scratching a different itch. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, like in the, in the podcast world, being on a podcast and editing a podcast are two very different creative outlets. And I really, I really enjoy both of them. I really enjoy being the editor of the shows that I'm on. Actually, I, I edit all the shows I'm on. <laughs> and that's partly because I'm, I'm a control freak and partly because it's the kind of job that typically if one person volunteers to do it, no one, yeah, no one else really can argue for them. <laughs> you know, there's not, not a lot of people jumping at the job usually. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoy editing the podcast I'm on because it, it, is, it gives it a certain creative voice. It gives it editorial control. And it 
trains these skills in me that I find not only, you know, interesting and satisfying, but also useful in the rest of my life. Like, because I know how to edit podcasts, it lets me make my podcast app a little bit better in certain ways. And like those skills kind of build on each other. So professionally, it's good. But really, the biggest reason I do it is is just creatively. Like, I, I really enjoy that. And so moving into video, part of the reason I wanted to move into video was basically purely business. Obviously, there's a massive YouTube audience that I'm currently not reaching at all. And part of my business involves growing an audience for everything I do, for podcasts, for, uh, you know, now videos, you know, building my online brand, as, as people say. And and that all feeds into my, my app as well. Like, you know, the more people know me, the more people will download my app, the more easily it is for me to for me to promote things when I do have things to promote. So for business reasons, I should I should definitely have a video presence at this point. But also just for creative reasons, I feel like I I just want to try that. Like I, I want to see, you know, at first I was just like a blogger, not well, not just if it's a bad thing, but you know, first I at first I was <laughs> only I was only writing. Mm-hmm. And then I added podcasting after I was writing for something like 10 years. I added podcasting into the into what I did. And I was scared at first. And I sucked at first. But then I got better and I got less scared. And now I can't see possibly not podcasting. Like I, I can't I can't foresee that. I, I just enjoy it so much. And it's become such a critical part of both my my professional life and my creative satisfaction that now I'm experimenting with adding video the same way I added podcasts, you know, whatever that was, eight years ago, whenever that was, because ultimately I want to see if video can have a similar kind of role where mm-hmm. I can add it to the, you know, the stable of things I do. I see all the value of it, so I everything you're saying definitely resonates with me. On the note of editing things, I think that it can be really, really valuable to edit your work. And that can be that can be any kind of work, whether it's uh, either writing or photography or filmmaking or or podcasts, going back and letting yourself be annoyed at your mistakes, I find to be (laughs) incredibly helpful. Uh, Even in examples when I'm podcasting, I I have never fully been able to break my ums and ahs habits. But by doing the edit myself, and I'm forced to hear every time I do something kind of frustrating, and I'm like, oh, I got to break that nervous tick. I've got to, I got to stop getting images out of focus or uh, all these things, that frustration is a lot of the ways that I start to check things off the list. Like, okay, I don't do that one dumb thing anymore that I I used to have to stare at myself doing. So I find it really helpful. Actually, the last guest on the the show is a cinematographer. We were talking about that challenge of when you're just choosing what all the shots look like, but then you don't work with them afterwards. This kind of gap is created where you don't you don't get to see all your mistakes and it's a little bit harder to learn from them if it's somebody else that suffers from your mistakes and, and you just get to walk away. Right. And, and like by you as the talent or whatever, if you are also the editor or at least if you are an editor, <laughs> yeah. if you aren't you know, editing that particular thing, you know what editors need. Mm-hmm. So if you like mess up, if you fumble a line or you want to re- restate something, you know how to do that. You know, to like, okay, leave me a second of silence and then like, then <laughs> just do it again and make no reference to the past thing that I said, like stuff like that. Like, you know to do it. And so even the way that, you know, what you record, what you choose to record and how you choose to do it changes once you have an editing background because you know what either you in the future or your editor will need from that. 
Well, I couldn't imagine making anybody edit the A roll for my YouTube videos, which is like the the talking segments, right? Sometimes there'll be five minutes of one line <laughs> or, you know, one like couple sentences that I just keep getting wrong. <laughs> and especially challenging with tech sometimes because the specs are so important. You have to get every single number exactly right. And I'll, sometimes I'll just, you know, switch the word Photoshop with Lightroom or just stupid things. And I'll just go over it again and again. And yeah, I mean, to have anybody else suffer through that, I'd I kind of feel bad for them. But how has that been for you, Casey? Like, is it different now that you're suddenly in a role of having to edit yourself? Uh, some, yeah. I do a pass of analog. I, I don't do the edit in the sense that I sit there in logic and, and rearrange, you know, waveforms and things of that nature, which is what we've been talking about so far. But I do go through, and I used to do this for ATP, and then Marco uh, got more involved and really just didn't need me to do it anymore. But I, I will go through and listen to the show and, and take note of the ums, the uhs, the crosstalks, the things of that nature. And so I feel like that gave me a little bit of what Marco is talking about, figuring out what an editor needs. But it's still very different when you're actually moving either waveforms or video around in a timeline. And I think that it has taught me a lot more about how creative one really can be. And, and even despite the fact that I just spent a couple of minutes telling you about how great Marco is as an editor, it's still different to experience it for yourself and realize, oh, I can take this one clip. And if I wanted to, like you were saying, Tyler, I could take, you know, the first half of this take and the second half of that take and somehow mash together something that almost looks reasonable. And, you know, it was it was really obvious but new to me thought technology that, oh, if I have B-roll and I want to make a cut in the middle of a take, I can just <laughs> insert B-roll and suddenly it works just fine. And that's so obvious. But these are the sorts of things, because I'm so new at this, that I needed to kind of figure out or be told in some circumstances, oh, th this is a way you can hide that editing mistake. Uh, maybe there's equivalence in podcasting, but I would assume that it's much, much harder to do that sort of thing because you only have one medium. You know, you can't distract with video and fluff around with the audio. It's all just audio. But nevertheless, it, like Marco was saying earlier, you know, there's the me that's in front of the camera and the me that's sitting in the editing bay, if you will. And I need to be me, the quote unquote star needs to be cognizant and aware of what me, the editor needs in the future. And having kind of two faces or two hats on at the same time, not to mention being a director slash cinematographer slash whatever. It's just, it's a lot to balance all at once. And, and these videos that I'm shooting, you know, they're 10 or maybe 15 minutes, but I'm doing all of the work myself and I'm doing it on a shoestring budget by design, but I'm doing it on a shoestring budget. And so I'm just trying to make something that isn't deeply embarrassing with little to no equipment and little to no help. Yeah, the, the help thing, I think, is the biggest challenge because with audio, like if, if you want to make a podcast, you can make a podcast by yourself. It's not easy to make that awesome, but you can do it. Uh, you know, some you know, very talented people are able to do that. But podcasts are a lot better when you have more than one person. Hey, I'm struggling through one man show uh, every week. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you're doing an interview show. It's, it's a little sure, different, yeah, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. When, when I have to, occasionally I do solo shows and those are so challenging. Like I'm not. Oh. <laughs> it, it's much harder. Yeah. So like with podcast, if you involve another person, they don't have to be somebody who lives, you know, in your house or can work in your office. They can be anywhere. And it doesn't really matter. And the audience doesn't really even know that, let alone have any downsides to that. Whereas for a video shoot, it's a very people intensive thing. And you have to have everybody locally, like you have to have people who can join you like in person to help out or be in your video. 
obviously many many youtubers don't have that and so we have to just kind of make do with ourselves and maybe our spouses if we're you know if we're lucky but i think it it makes everything harder for video in addition to all the other things because like video so often requires just extra hands or extra operators of things or extra talent for things and it's way harder to get that for most people's lives than it is for podcasts another part that i've found harder is is speaking i mean we're sitting here and we're all just talking and talking and it's been however many minutes already and we haven't found a need to stop or redo any of our lines do you guys make notes ahead of time do you feel like you need to repeat things that you say a lot i I always find that thoughts flow more fluidly when there's this conversation happening like the element of having another person on the other end of a podcast can really help in propelling things forward which is exactly to your point about solo podcasting, Marco. But how do you guys find that experience? It's really tough. And I think the thing the thing that doesn't relate to equipment, that doesn't relate to the edit, the thing that relates to just me, the thing that's hardest for me about being in front of the camera is being as effusive when I'm standing by myself in a park or in a parking lot or mm-hmm. something like that, being as <laughs> effusive as I am right now. And I'm, I, I'm an animated guy. I talk with my hands. I know you can't see me because this isn't a video show, even for the three of us, but I'm waving my hands all around like an idiot right now. And when I'm standing in public looking at an iPhone that's on a tripod, knowing how conspicuous and odd this looks, it's hard for me to be the real me, if that makes any sense. Oh, like yeah, the, yeah. The, the really effusive and hopefully interesting me. And that's something that I feel like I have gotten a lot better, but I have a long way to go in order to continue to be closer to the real me or maybe even the like amped up version of me because something that I keep trying to remind myself, but it's hard to really internalize is that the more effusive I am, of course, up to a point, but probably that point is well beyond what I'm capable of. The more effusive I am, the better it will show on camera. So if I'm twice as animated as I think I really should be, within reason, of course, that's probably for the best, you know? So not to say I need to be a complete ham, but I I should probably be hamming it up more than I am right now and just allowing myself to just kind of be a little bit goofy. And that's very, very hard to do at all, whether you're sitting in your house or especially if you're, for me anyway, if you're in public, like I could get away with it at the house because I feel like that's my private space. But when I'm out it is really, really hard for me to be really, really effusive and, and, and emotive and interesting. And that's the thing that's been very difficult for me to work on. And I think if I had somebody else to play off of, it would have been, it would be a lot easier. Well, it's part of why I want to encourage guys like you to, and, and girls out there to do this kind of work that are thoughtful and not naturally incredibly loud, because that's the YouTube I enjoy. You know, I like to hear things kind of at my tempo, which is like we're speaking right now, you know, like kind of a normal conversation <laughs> level and the screaming and breaking things and what uh, YouTubers can be associated with sometimes of mm-hmm. just being a bit obnoxious is not interesting to me. But as a format, as a platform, YouTube is so powerful that I want to see it have it to be more clear that it is multiple things because there are great people doing great work on it. And I think you guys could be part, you're becoming part of that community. And of course, like MKBHD or uh, Jonathan Morrison or like, there's so many have, tech people. At least that, I have a little while to go. 
Well, I'm just saying, but, but personality wise, I mean, if you guys were, if they were on a podcast with you, then it would be level playing field and you guys would get along great. The conversation would run smoothly. Uh, and I think there's some additional challenges when it comes to video, but I, I like there being more of that sort of that civilizing factor on YouTube where it's like, we can all just, we can all relax and, and just talk like grownups here. And, and also just have that kind of like thoughtful discussion that happens, especially happens on podcasts because they're longer. This episode is brought to you by Chronoby, makers of premium connected watches that could fit into any wardrobe. They have all the smart features that you'd expect from a modern phone, so they can give you notifications, you can play and pause your music, trigger photos, all sorts of things, but they also look like a real watch. They are a real watch. And you know what? I spend so much time staring at my phone, staring at screens, that I really like that little break when I look at my wrist and it's just metal. It's metal and glass, and it's just telling me the time. It's not giving me other alerts. All it's telling me is, hey, you might want to check your phone when you have time, but it's lowering my level of distraction, which I really appreciate. And here's a little trick. If you haven't figured it out already, no matter which smartwatch you're wearing, the best thing to do is turn down the notifications. Have as few as you possibly can. I try to have them only go off for one or two things when texts come in from very important people. But you can expand that to phone calls if you want to, or maybe when you meet certain health goals. But try to have it go off as seldom as possible and just, you'll thank me later. So go to chronoby.com, that's K-R-O-N-B-Y, and check out some of their amazing designs. Thank you so much to Chronoby for sponsoring the show and keeping me on time. So, Marco, you've mostly filmed in the house, right? Do you feel the same awkwardness? And have you considered taking your show on the road, if you will, and, and filming any of this stuff outside? So one of the reasons I've considered filming things outside, I haven't yet, but one of the reasons I've considered it is that for my standards, it's way easier to get good audio outside mm. because you remove the, the echo problem that you have indoors. You introduce other challenges, but it's expected. Like if you're outside and like, you know, you hear a little bit of, you know, a bird chirping in the background or something, no one cares. That sounds normal. Yeah. But like if you're inside and you're in a big echoey room and you everyone can hear the echo, you hear that and, and that that matters. So just purely selfishly, as somebody who cares a lot about sound, I like the idea of recording outside to get easier, better sound. But that's not a very good reason. For like the enthusiastic angle here. I've been mostly okay with that, I think. And in, in part because, like, when I... So when we record ATP, about a year ago, I started doing the ads in advance. I, I, re I record the ads. When I sit down about an hour before the show starts, I will record the ads myself in my house with, you know, no, hopefully nobody around. And I have to basically use the same energy level and tone of voice that I plan to use during the show... So it sounds right mm -hmm, when, the mm -hmm. when you transition into the ads. And that's, you know, it took me a while to figure out how to do that, but I think I'm pretty close now. And so I, I've, got, I've developed a skill of, like, turning that on all the way really fast. Mm. And so I think I'm doing a similar thing in video. I haven't quite nailed it yet. I, I think my voice is okay, but I think I, uh, my facial expressions are not happy enough yet in the videos. But <laughs> I've only done, like two so or oh. you know three total so it, it, i still have a very small sample set here uh, I've, I've been working through some technical and and set issues uh some of which i i have i think solved some of which i will probably never solve but yeah i'm, I'm getting there well i'd love to hear about some of those that'd be something that'd be fun to work through what what are your current biggest obstacles so i really was not happy with the audio for either of the last two videos the the, the mac mini video the first of the two 
I had horrible audio sync issues because I forgot to record audio on the camera track. So I had nothing to sync the, re- the audio Oof. recording to. Yeah, that's so I had to sync it manually and it was full of drift and it kept, it was all over the place. It was a mess. I had, I, I synced it up at like 10 different points and it was still a drifty, horrible mess. And so that was no good. And then the iPad Pro video, technically it was fairly decent, but I had gotten it by using a, an overhead boom mic where it just had a frame and just like heavily processing the audio to remove some of the reverb of the room and to, you know, EQ it and everything. But it was mostly reverb removal, noise removal. And I, it just, you know, no matter what I did to it, it still sounded like the microphone was like 50 feet away from me, even though it was in practice about two and a half feet from my mouth. Right, yeah. <laughs> but that's just like, you know, it's still a lot further than, than, you know, than it should have been. So audio wise, I, I have a long way to go. I'm experimenting now with lavaliers. And I think, I think that's, that's honestly, that's probably the better way to go with what I want to do and where I want to do it. Another option would be to cover my office in sound blankets or, you know, like, and, or bring them up. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, the other problem I'm facing, which is, which is a set problem, is that I have no studio. I, and I don't really want to create a studio. I, I, think, I think it would be a little bit premature to do that uh, right now. And so I'm doing all this just in like half of my home office. And what I wanted ultimately was to set up something that I could just basically leave either completely or almost completely set up. So it would be easy for me to go do the videos. And that has proven challenging, not impossible, but challenging. And I also, you know, because I'm also using this room as an office, and it's one of the predominant rooms in my house, so like it has to still look nice, it has to still function for other reasons. The family and I have to be able to like walk through here and be in here without there being stuff up all the time. So it's been a challenge to just like try to figure out like, how to light the room, how to, you know, where to put a camera that I can leave it on a tripod all the time, where to put like, you know, how, how do I mic the room, you know, like the, stuff like that. And there's still issues like, you know, it turns out the reason why most YouTubers sit like at a table while standing <laughs> or something is so they can show stuff more easily. Mm-hmm. And um, the furniture we have for this room is not configured for that at all. And so like you start, I start running into issues like this, like, okay, I, Ideally, I should probably be creating a whole new studio set somewhere to do just this, but I don't have a room to do that in right now. Like it's like most people don't have extra rooms lying around not being used, <laughs> and so so it, you know, in it, my my compromise is let me just try to do some stuff in in my office and and see how far I can get. But that's that's necessarily very compromised in certain ways. It's funny because I've had a bit of some of my successes come from doing these vlogs where I'm traveling around and I'm in the real world and I go somewhere beautiful and tie that into talking. Um, And I think people have liked that. But what I've always wanted to do the most is set up a permanent studio and just come in every day at the same time and turn on the lights and it all looks beautiful. (laughs) And I just sit down like, um, I've always been jealous of the guys from uh, Kind of Funny Games. They all came from IGN and they were doing the IGN podcast for years. And then they just went independent and set up this studio that is done very nicely on a relatively small budget. And I, when I watch their show, I'm like, that would be great. I just want to arrive and flick on one switch and, and everything boots up and then you can, uh, you know. That's, that's the dream. Yeah, yeah, totally. But then at the same time, there becomes the challenge of, uh, well, then how do you make it more than, than a, a podcast as well? Because, you know, I do think that there is, is value to separating the, the formats a little bit. Like it's challenging to do like a video conversation that's super interesting where you're just sitting at the desk, right? So then you still need to find a way to kind of make the product look beautiful and stuff. But yeah, I, I don't know. But it's interesting that we're kind of all representing these 
three different sides of it. Like, Casey, have you had any desire to talk in one place? Like, have you tried recording indoors at all? Are you going to stick to the on-the-go format? I, I think it doesn't make sense to me to to record indoors because the whole idea is, you know, this this series is about cars and cars don't typically end up indoors with the exception of a garage. And a garage is typically not a very exciting thing to look at, or at least mine certainly isn't. And so because of that, I, I feel like I... I want to stay outdoors as much as possible. And the only reason I would come indoors is if I just needed, you know, I, I didn't have film for a thing that I just cannot avoid saying, and I need somewhere to say it. So maybe, you know, I would sit behind a desk or sit in or stand in my house somewhere and talk about it. But for me, the, the my vision of, of Casey on Cars is that it, it will always be outdoors. And I, I feel okay to good about my kind of formula, which is a little bit of talking with me standing or walking around the car up front, and then a little bit of maybe a little bit more of that talking, a little bit of driving, and then again, a conclusion at the end where I do a little more, you know, walking around the car while it's stationary. And and I feel like that formula works for me. Obviously, I won't be able to ride that through 800 episodes if I ever get to that point. But at least starting out, I feel like the formula is okay. And I think if I were to to change the formula, it would be to put myself in more interesting uh, landscapes or, you know, to, to drive in more interesting areas. Right now, I'm just... Or, or use more drones. Oh, God, don't even get me started. <laughs> well, the thing, you know, uh, this this is a sore subject for me because for listeners who aren't really familiar with me, uh, one of my listeners was kind enough to lend me a, a, a Mavic Pro, the, the first one, the Mavic Pro 1. And I'd never flown a drone before, and I, he let me hold on to it for like a month. And... I am in love with the idea of using drone photography to do these shoots, but I'm American, which means I, and I'm filming in America, which means I need to go and get my FAA license uh, if I continue to run ads on the channel because it's unequivocally commercial. And there's like a whole bunch of red tape that I would need to go through in order to do this on the up and up. And I probably will do that at some point, but while I'm still just trying to figure out if this is ever going to be a decent return on my time investment, uh, for now, I'm trying to forget that drones exist. So thanks for that. Uh, just just do my part <laughs> to keep you uh, from forgetting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, to, to come back around, you know, the Blue Ridge Parkway is this really, really lovely uh, mountain range that's only about an hour and a half from my house. And Today, I don't think I have the the viewership to justify going all the way out to the parkway and trying to set up there and trying to do B-roll there and so on and so forth. But if this thing really does have legs, which of course requires me to release videos in a more timely fashion, then then I might t- you know do that sort of thing rather than just driving uh, you know the roads of Richmond, Virginia or the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, which really are not much to look at both in, both inside the car and outside. But you know, if this really gets to be something decent, I think that's one of the ways I can really crank up the production values is by having. Uh, a much better backdrop for both my stationary me talking at the camera shots as well as driving shots. And certainly, you know, if I had my druthers, I would find someone to work with me and be either the pilot of the car or the pilot of the drone while I do this sort of thing. Well, the real source of a lot of the problems we're, we're talking about is also finding your format, deciding w- what does it mean for me to create a video and what is typically in that. It's same with the podcast as well. Any kind of regular content that you're going to create, discovering what your unique take on that is going to be can be 
the the whole problem. And once you once you find it, all of a sudden it can just all click. I mean, I wasn't there for you guys, but when you uh, switch from a car show to a tech show, there is a bit of that too. It's like once you discovered the the format that really worked for you, all of a sudden you could just run with it, and it turned into a big thing. And and I know I found that too. So I was sitting around looking at the gear that I wanted to review. And I'm like, I, I, I know that it would be good for me to post videos about this new camera that I got or whatever it is that I'm using for my work. But I have too many ideas about how I could possibly present <laughs> that. And I'm looking at all these other formats, everybody else. And finally, I just asked a friend to come over and said, look, can you just hold the camera and I'm going to talk? <laughs> and then and then after that, that was a bit boring. So then I just took the camera and shot some very simple moving B-roll of the of the uh, product I was re- reviewing and um, cut it together and it went well. It had, it got over a hundred thousand views. It wasn't very special, but all of a sudden it's like, I got it. Okay. Now I know what I'm doing. I can move forward. And and that's what, how I kind of found my momentum is once I realized what the format was. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's an adventure and it's, it's, I think part of the thing that's daunting for me about going down the path of trying to become a YouTuber is that, there's so many moving parts, all of which, to come back to what Marco was saying earlier, all of which I feel like I am terrible at. You know, there's the whole aspect of like not gaming the system. That's way more negative than I mean it. But like, you know, to, I haven't even gone to the so far as to get my fancy, you know, channel URL. I'm still, you know, youtube.com slash channel slash, you know, ABCD, FGHIJKLMNP or whatever the hell it is. And simple stuff like that. And, and uh, doing the title card and, and, you know, doing something that I've hacked together in like Photoshop or what have you and putting that in. These are obvious things that it didn't take me long to figure out. But there's that whole aspect that I'm trying to learn. There's the aspect of getting decent audio, not only from me outside in the wind in a lot of cases, but me in a moving car with a motor, you know, with an engine rumbling right next to me. There's the uh, there's the whole thing about me getting decent video uh, up until now out of an iPhone. I've recently upgraded my my camera, so I'm going to start using that for in the future. But all my videos so far have just been iPhone videos. And at first I was using the stock camera app and then I eventually got wise to Filmic Pro and and exposure locking and focus locking and things of that nature. But there's that whole aspect. I mean, there's so many different moving parts. There's finding the right format. All of this, it's what makes it so exciting, but what makes it so unbelievably daunting. And the the reason I think I might be sticking with this YouTube thing for a long time, assuming I have access to cars or something to talk about, is that even if I, even let's say I get my audio just locked in, which is unlikely, but let's just go with it. Even if my audio is locked in, now I can work on my video. Even if my video is locked in, I can work on the content. Even if the content is locked in, then I can worry about the YouTube algorithm and, and figure out how to make that work in, in my favor. And so there's so much to keep me going. And there, there's so much that I don't even feel like I totally know what it is I don't know. I, that's how ignorant I feel at this point, which makes it fun. Like That's not designed to be a complaint. It makes it super fun, but super duper daunting. I don't know. Marco, do you feel similarly? Oh, yeah. I mean... Everything about YouTube, I feel like a total novice, a total newbie. <laughs> I'm totally lost, and I'm doing everything wrong. But do you watch it much? Like, are you familiar with what other people are doing? Some. Not as much as I probably should. Uh, agreed. On my, for me as yeah. well. I feel the exact same way. I found that to be a bit of a turning point for me, is, that, is once I started looking at other people that were doing something like what I had imagined, all of a sudden I could see their solutions to my problems. Mm-hmm. So an example you had a minute ago, Casey, was that you were talking about 
realizing that you could put B-roll over top of speaking. If you're just watching other creators with the intent of learning, all of a sudden these things just start jumping out at you and you realize like, oh, they're standing in front of a window in this way because the lighting is nice and they're Mm -hmm. recording the B-roll in slow motion because then you can get much more of it that lasts longer without shooting as much. Or, you know, there's just all these little things. And as you're like looking more closely, they just start I don't know. I've got, I made a lot of notes at first that I think I've lost since, but that really moved things quickly for me is when I started trying to extract those, some of those basic lessons that a lot of other YouTubers and just video creators in general had already solved the problems that I was trying to figure out myself. I think like on a bigger picture level, part of the problem I'm going to have with that is that I don't really know what I'm trying to be yet. Like, I don't really know yeah. what, like, if, if you ask me, like, oh, find some people who are doing what, what you want to do. Like, yeah. I don't really have a good answer for that. So wh- like, what could you say about it so far? Like, what are some qualities of future Marco videos that you'd consider to be successful? Well, part of it is that I just want to do more of them, you know, and, and that's, <laughs> yeah. and I'm yeah. not entirely sure, like, what form that'll take. Like, obviously, I don't want to stop being a podcaster or quit any of my podcast shows or stop being an app developer or spend less time with my family. So obviously, like, there's a time problem here, right? Like, if I'm trying to add something significant that I also don't want to give up all the things I'm currently doing, it's going to be hard to do that in a way that is very time-consuming, obviously. And so what I want to do is find a way, I know this sounds ridiculous, but find a way to make more videos without them each taking as much time as they they have so far. Mm -hmm. You know, and part of that is just going to be getting better at the techniques because as I get better at these things, they will take me less time. But also part of that is going to have to involve like being okay with a certain limit on how good of or what kind of production values I can I can have, what types of videos I can make and probably how big my audience can be. Uh, But that's okay. Like as I watch other people's YouTube videos I see that there's a wide variety of production levels and a huge variety of what I consider quality. And that seems okay. Like it's, you know, we're not all producing TV shows here. Like it seems totally okay to have, you know, like if I'm doing like tech reviews, like my video is not going to have the production quality that The Verge's video has because I'm not The Verge (laughs) and I can't become The Verge. Even if somehow somebody gave me the opportunity, I probably wouldn't even want to because that's not the kind of time commitment that I am willing to put in in this. So like I, I need to find out like what should my video content be? What types of videos do I need to make and how much time can I really devote to them in any kind of sustainable fashion? Yeah, and yeah. I'm not sure what the answer there is yet, but I but I think like you know you mentioned you mentioned earlier um, that Instagram stories kind of help get you get you going. For me, like one of my most inspiring uh, moments for video was not recent. It was Periscope. I realized back forever ago when that was a thing that oh, actually, like making just casual videos where I'm putting in no effort whatsoever. I'm not doing any writing ahead of time. I'm not doing any set design or lighting or audio or anything. And I'm just like holding my phone and filming stuff with, you know, myself and my wife and our dog and our kid just like being funny somehow. And people liked that. And it was really easy to make. So I, I think at some point I, I realized like, you know, I, I want to get closer to that. 
that's why like for the Mac mini video, I shot the whole thing with my iPhone. I just kind of wanted to see like, can I do an entire video with my iPhone? Like, do I really need fancy camera gear? And the answer turned out to be, yeah, I kind of do need fancy <laughs> camera gear because it was a real pain in the butt to do some of those shots. But, you know, I didn't need it for all the shots. So I learned that there, there's a certain like ceiling of effort that I should put into certain things that once I cross that level, it's just diminishing returns for me. And I don't want to burn myself out or, or set the expectations so high that I just never make videos again. You know, it's interesting you say that because I feel the same way in a lot of ways and also don't. So the way I feel similarly is that, you know, I will never produce a top gear quality car review. I, I don't have the budget. I don't have the time. I don't have the skill and that's okay. And I also agree that I, at the, at this present moment, I don't want to be spending 40 hours a week, every single week working on car videos. As, as fun as I think that would be, it's just not a, a wise choice. You know, I think my lifetime YouTube revenue might have crossed 50 bucks so, you know, so far, which I'm real excited about. But, hey, congratulations. I'm still yeah, in review for, for monetization. <laughs> oh, well, that, yeah, I was for, I think, a month or two. So I, I know what that feels like. But anyways, but what's interesting is when you look at like the YouTube stars in this world in, in the car reviewing world and and i'm probably i probably don't know all of them but there are two that i think of as peer and also somewhat aspirational so one of them is regular car rev- reviews which is exactly what it says on the tin kind of like accidental tech podcast am i right but anyways it's a, a guy who reviews unremarkable cars typically not new and he i th- believe was a english major in college and so he seems to do it's almost as though he's doing a radio show and has video for filler. And that sounds very dismissive and I don't mean it that way at all. What's interesting to me about regular car reviews, which is very vulgar and that may not be your thing. So I'll be forewarned, but what's interesting about it is it's very well written and not particularly well shot. As an example, they do all this B roll of these cars rolling where it's extremely obvious. They haven't even spent $150 on a gimbal for like an iPhone. And it doesn't look like the the video is any better than an iPhone or a Pixel or whatever. I'm not trying to pick on a particular vendor, but they don't even spend. I mean, I can spend $150 on a gimbal, and I am cheap as anything. So it's bananas to me that they haven't even done that much. And so on the one side, I feel like this is one of the people that I aspire to be as good as. And yet, while I think they are so much better on the writing aspect of things. They are hilariously bad on the video side of things, and yet it still works. And so I feel like if I can, if I have even slightly, uh, even a slightly better eye than they do, and even just the bare minimum of equipment, which is exactly what I feel like I'm working with, I should be able to come up with something that's visually not too shabby. So, and then take uh, Doug DeMiro or even MKBHD's car stuff. I think Doug does his stuff all by himself or maybe with like one other person it shows. And I think that he does really well with video and audio, not flawlessly by any means, but really well, especially for a single person. But I think he goes on way too long and needs to be a little bit better self-editor. And I'm guilty of this as well, of course, but I, I think I'm better at it than he is so far. But on the other side of the coin, he has access to these like half million dollar cars that I will never, ever, ever have. And MKBHD is like a team of what, 30 or whatever, like 10 doing all his videos. And it shows, I mean, that he, he is so good at what he does. And it, and I think it's in no small part because of the, the time and effort and money he's willing to throw at the problem. So it's so weird because I feel like 
these people that I, I view as both aspirational and out of my league. And yet at the same time, in some ways, they're very within my grasp. I just got to really put my mind to it. Well, but also like I feel like you're, you're kind of putting the, the production values before the horse here. Forgive me for the horrible mixed <laughs> analogy. Like, you know, MKBHD got popular long before he had sure, amazing production sure, sure. values and a big staff. Like, you know, you don't need a big staff or amazing equipment to get popular. You need a big staff and amazing equipment to make a certain quality of video, a certain production value, uh, rather, of video. But I think the great thing about YouTube, and a lot of this applies to podcasting too, is that you can build an audience based solely on your personality and your drive to build an audience. Like, if you are interesting and people like you, and you try really frequently, not even very hard, just frequently, (laughs) then you can build an audience. So, you know, like you're focusing, and I have, I'm very guilty of this myself and and on many occasions, you're focusing so much on on gear and on production values when really you just said it yourself, like a lot of these channels are, are, you know, they have production values, but they don't maybe have the writing or they're not saying the things you want to say. That I think is so much more important than the production values. Like the production values to me, like you have to reach a certain minimum of like, can you understand the audio? Is the video at all reasonable? Like, you know, can you see the person and understand what they are saying? (laughs) Yes or no? Like, that's about it. And then the rest is extra bonus. But if you can just put out a video where you and or the product you are reviewing is barely visible and you are intelligible and your microphone can pick you up without too much crap in the background, so it's easy to listen to and easy to watch then what matters after that is, are you saying interesting things? Because, yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah. I, you know, when I, when I look at, like, the popular channels, yeah, I'm, I'm intimidated, and I, I know I'll never reach that, you know, at all. But what, what gives me hope is when I search for something, <laughs> and, I, and I see... Yeah, the other top ten results. What all is out there. Yeah, like, you know, like, searching, you know, like, one of the things I do often is I'll search for gear reviews for some, you know, microphone I'm looking at or something like that. And the reviews of these are hilariously bad like there's almost nobody doing good gear reviews of the things i search for and it's got a hundred thousand views yeah exactly and and maybe it's because i'm searching for very specialized gear in in some cases but sometimes i'm not and they're still terrible so like i I feel like if you compare yourself to mkbhd and you know doug demuro and top gear i think you're gonna have a hard time sure but if you just search and you look at everything else that's out there you're like oh actually you know what I can do better than a lot of this, so I think I'll be all right. It's funny. You might actually be intimidated because you can see so much beautiful cinematography on YouTube. If if you look around, you can find a lot of really great-looking stuff. But if you think about it, what's really missing is a lot of great ideas. There's only so many people out there creating videos that also have a lot of really interesting insights. So the people, most of the people whose opinions I value the most are are writing and podcasting because well actually I, I was about to say because but I don't I don't quite know why I always think it's a little strange that more of them don't get into into video but I think that is where I can tell you why well but there's a bigger <laughs> hole in the market I mean I th- I think there's so much room for great interesting ideas so a place that this has been taken care of is in the news area Philip DeFranco has a fantastic daily show where he's just talking to camera which is what vlogs used to be we think of vlogs now as Casey Neistat running around with a giant SLR in front of his face and making these really cinematic travel stories. But vlogs used to be just turning on your webcam. 
Filter Franco has a new show where he basically is just talking to his webcam still every day, but the ideas are interesting, people value his opinions, they come back every day because they know and trust him, and it's it's a personality thing. And I think there's a lot of room for that kind of person, and it it is not as important to have incredibly beautiful videos. And people value that. People will find those types of videos and and recommend it to their friends, and especially with you. I mean, you guys can already seed your audience from other things that you've done. So, uh, yeah, I really think you shouldn't est- underestimate the value of good ideas and and reasonable thinking. This episode is brought to you by The Camera Store. You've probably seen them on YouTube because The Camera Store TV creates some of the best videos about cameras and photography gear that is out there. I mean, they've been doing it for years. If you search for anything you're looking to buy, they've probably made a great video about it. They have very well-informed staff that know everything about the gear that you're looking for. So if you live in Canada, you can shop there online. Go to thecamerastore.com. There's free shipping in Canada for orders over $100. Or if you're not in Canada, just go to YouTube and search for The Camera Store TV to enjoy some quality camera programming. Thanks again to The Camera Store for supporting the show. I think the reason why you don't see a lot of bloggers and podcasters coming to video is because it's a lot more work. Like it's If you look at the number of minutes required to get an idea out there, you know, it, it, minutes of work, it, you know, in podcasting is by far the best ratio. Like podcasting is by far the least effort to the most ideas expressed like per minute, right? I think writing, blogging, or, you know, writing is probably next on the hierarchy. And then there's a big gap and there's video, right? Like there's video is way more work yeah. per like idea expressed. So that like what I'm trying to do, like, as I said, like what I'm trying to do really is for, for my stuff, I'm trying to reduce that cost as much as I can to have a setup, have a format, have more casual stuff going on. Use, you know, more, use less gear total, basically, you know, use my phone as, you know, as much as I can, stuff like that. Just, just to get that cost down a little bit, but it's still like an order of magnitude more expensive of your time than podcasting. And so it's really hard to, for podcasters to justify the, the time and effort to break into video. I think that if they saw the return on invest, I mean, when, when you see the potential of what doing successful YouTube can mean, like for me, the fact that sometimes I can say a sentence or express an idea and it ends up being heard by more than a million people. That's I can't do that with with podcasting. Even though I fully agree with everything you're saying. I mean, I think the most valuable ideas come out in this kind of in format. Uh, I just couldn't resist the knowledge that as people get bigger on video platforms, they're able to communicate with such a wide audience that I wanted to for for me anyway. I just wanted to try to get what I consider to be slightly better ideas than some that I saw. Uh, out there to as big of an audience as I could. And easy, easiest way, even though it was a lot more work, still turned out to be videos. But I have not solved the problem personally of spending a reasonable amount of time on each video. They always still go way beyond what I what I hoped for. And usually the longer I spend on a video, the less people watch it in the end, to be honest. It's the, <laughs> it's the quick ones that, yeah. No, my, my most successful video was done in like a short two days, like at two half days. And the videos that I think are good are, you know, four or five day productions. So yeah, yeah, you never know. So to that end, I, I, first of all, I'm curious, how long ago do you think you walked this walk that, that Marco and I are in the middle of? Because I, I don't know enough of your back catalog to know if you really got serious in YouTube 
a year ago, 10 years ago, or, or something else in between. And then my follow-on question to that is, what do you feel like you're struggling with? Which I'm sure some of it is a lot of the same stuff, but I have to imagine at this point, you are at a very different level than the two of us are. I mean, I've seen your work. And so to my eyes, you're you're way ahead of either of us. But to your eyes, what are the sorts of things that you struggle with that are perhaps unique to having made a bit of a profession, if not a, a full-on profession, out of YouTube? The struggle definitely never ends. Did my first videos that are, are still on my channel in, I think it might have been 2008? I'm looking... So it right? has been 10 years. Yeah. But I stopped for a long time. So back then, there was... You know, YouTube was new. My account was created in 2006, and I think that was the year that it came out. And at that time, video was still mixed into podcasting a lot. So I started doing this. A vid I thought a video podcast was my main thing. And then I just shot those videos out to everywhere else. So I put it on YouTube and on Vimeo. And I don't wait, I'm not remembering anything else that was around at that time. There's like five other video sites that nobody really used, and they are all gone by now. But uh, for me at the time, I thought I was making a video podcast. And then I kind of discontinued that. I, I just let it fall off because, I don't know, I wasn't seeing the, the return on it and I don't know, life, whatever. Finally, I came back to it in that story I just gave you guys a few minutes ago about knowing that I wanted to do it, but feeling like I couldn't find a format. And then I just turned on the camera and did it. So I, I ran into the very first production issues about 10 years ago, where I was doing almost exactly the same things you guys are of trying to figure out basic audio and syncing and, and those things. I had solved those because I was I was more directly interested in video production as well. Like I was watching a lot of tutorials and spending a lot of time just focusing on how do I do this, putting a lot of energy into that. I just didn't turn that into YouTube videos until a year and a half ago. It's kind of when my first videos that picked up some some steam were. Now my definitely my biggest issue is still time. Like you guys are saying that the the way that I've been able to handle that is uh, there have been more sponsored videos. So I've been able to reallocate some of my income to YouTube, which means then, okay, now I can put that time into YouTube because I just got paid for it. So now I don't need to take on an additional photography job or, or web design work is what I was doing before. So now I at least am being able to to find more of that time, but it's still taking me far too much of it. And I think a lot of that is lack of planning so that uh, I, I think that I've shot everything that I need and then I get to the editing suite and I put most of it together and I realize this is not a complete video. This isn't good enough. And then I need oh, to go back yeah. and I shoot more. That's really slowed me down. So part of how I'm trying to solve that now, my solution, I think, is to split more between simple talking videos and complicated videos. Try to get, you know, like a uh, maybe two simple videos for every one complicated video. Those still can be successful. So, I mean, you can see this happening on MKBHD's channel of he'll do like Q&As or just talking videos. And it still gets, it can get as much traffic as the big ones. The, the well-produced videos kind of prop up the channel and they give people a reason to subscribe. But everybody that gets to know you keeps coming back for you sitting on a couch expressing an idea. So things like, I'll just talk about, you know, what apps am I using lately or what's on my Mac or basically straightforward things that could be podcast topics almost and and just edit them down to 10 minutes. So that's, that's kind of my current solution. But yeah, I mean, if I could get two or three videos out a week, it would... It would very much change my relationship with YouTube, but I don't know how I can effectively do that at this point. Yeah, that's the thing is... I feel like I have 
all of the ideas in the world. And well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but I feel like I have a ton of ideas and neither the time nor the skill. And hopefully over, hopefully as I get better at this or hopefully over, over doing more and more videos, I will build some of the skill. And my prayer is that I will get quicker at them. And I'm not entirely sure that's reality, but that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, it's just, it's tough because I feel like looking at both your work on on YouTube and on Instagram stories, you know, you were talking earlier about how how little pressure you feel on Instagram stories and far be it for me to put pressure on you. But I feel like of all the people I follow on Instagram, you are head and shoulders just miles better at stories than anyone else I know. Oh, and there are people PC. like there are people like Mike Hurley that I think are extremely good at Instagram stories and are, are clever and do funny ones and interesting ones and good ones. But I think you have an air of maybe professionalism, maybe seriousness. Like I'm not trying to take away from Mike, but I, I feel like there's it's a different caliber for you amongst the people I follow than others. And I don't know where I was going with this other than to say, I hope that as I do more and more of these sorts of things, including Instagram stories, uh, that I get better at having this become second nature. And as with any skill, I'm sure that will happen, but it, it, it feels like much more of an uphill battle than any other skill I've learned that I can think of in my life, other than sports-related things, because I'm a nerd. <laughs> Before we're completely out of time, I, I also just wanted to really quickly touch on the conversation you had about file management regarding your oh, photos no. specifically. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lecture you. <laughs> but what it got me thinking about, so I, I listened to the conversation and I was at first I was like, you know, I, I'm gonna have the solution for these guys. I I do photography for a job and I'll have all these great ideas. And as I listen, what I've been thinking about ever since that is that photo management for non-professionals is actually more challenging. It's it's really, really hard to know what to recommend people should do because the things that we're trying to get out of any file management systems that everything's in one place, you have sorted out the good stuff, so you know how to find it quickly. Probably you're deleting some of the bad stuff. Everything's backed up, so you have a second copy. Like, there's certain things that we're always trying to solve, and it's not clear at all what anybody should do. And the fact that you guys had all come to such completely different solutions, and then <laughs> on my end, I also couldn't recommend anything better, was um was interesting to me. And I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Well, it's like it's an interesting problem because when you look at like what people need out of their photo storage and workflow solutions, first of all, you have a wide variety of needs here. Like there, there is never going to be one thing that works for everybody. You also have like major costs at stake here because large photo collections can be very just, you know, they take a lot of disk space. They need a lot of bandwidth to sync. They need, you know, backup that's also equally large and things like that. So, so you have like expense, you have wide variety of needs, and then you have the the biggest issue, which is something that I, I've been meaning to talk about in a lot of places recently, and I just haven't gotten to it yet. But like, I think we live in an era of an increasing number of increasingly walled gardens. Like it mm, used to be mm-hmm. in tech that there were relatively few walled gardens. Occasionally, like you know, some new technology would come out. There would be like a brief format war, and then it would be resolved, and everyone would move on with like the new standard. These days, it seems like we have more walled gardens than ever in every new product category we have. So, for instance, we have 
obviously apple everything apple makes is a walled garden pretty much <laughs> and so you have you have that you have like our phones yeah. and the way they save camera they save photos only to the camera roll and if you want to import photos off a card it only goes to the camera roll and that only goes to icloud photo library by default and everything's so, like you have that but even to things like home speakers like we have now like you <laughs> yeah. can you yeah. can buy like an amazon echo or a home pod or a sonos system or a google blob or whatever these things are and they none of them talk to each other for the most part they all have their own like proprietary services everybody wants you to sign up for their subscription to participate exclusively in their ecosystem and we have just more and more walled gardens than ever that hits the photo management thing too you know, it definitely hits like, you know, the Apple workflow that I mentioned a second ago. You know, Adobe wants you to use the Adobe Creative Cloud suite and use the new Lightroom cloud platform and the cloud storage. And, you know, Google wants you to use Google Photos and their own stuff. And like everybody wants you to go all in on their system. Yeah. And it only works if you go all in. Right. And none of these systems are good enough for most people by themselves unless you have really simple needs. So like if your needs are probably a fairly common case if your needs are that you have an iphone and you shoot all your pictures on your iphone great your your needs are solved with apple's icloud photo library that's all you need you're done but if any of those things change if you don't just have an iphone if you don't shoot all your photos on your iphone then all of a sudden that falls apart quickly and so you need something else or maybe you're a pro and you want to do b- more editing of your photos. And so you want something like uh, like Lightroom for its better editing controls. Or maybe you're a pro and you do photo shoots for people and you don't want those mixed in with your personal photos. That becomes its own complexity then too. And so like there's all these different needs like if those basic assumptions of you have a family, you have a spouse, you want to share photos. Even that's hard with the built-in Apple stuff. So like if if you are anything beyond one individual user who shoots everything on the iPhone and that's it, then all of a sudden you start needing to involve multiple products. And because we're in this like this just city full of these skyscrapers of walled gardens, none of which can talk to each other, it's really you start running into these walls and you you hit them hard. And it's just a big pain. And sometimes the answer is you just can't do X, Y, or Z. Or sometimes the answer is you can do it, but it involves all these hacks or you need to sign up for like three different subscriptions to three different services, none of which you're really using all the way. I think it's gotten worse for me as I've shot more on my phone. It was easier when I would take more personal photos on my bigger cameras because, you know, I usually have a large camera with me for whatever reason, but iPhones are getting amazing. You know, there are times now that, especially with the XR or 10R and 10S, I'm seeing like more dynamic range. And sometimes I actually prefer the photo that comes out of it. And since I'm shooting more, that has made my management messier and worse because I have so many pictures that iPhones are not made for high volume where you shoot, say, 100 photos to get one photo. That does not work, but I do it. And now that has become a bit of a disaster that I'm just not really dealing with. Like I'm backing them up. And they exist somewhere, but they're not integrated in in any kind of unified system that I used to have. I used to feel like when Lightroom was all on a disk and I knew where that disk was and I knew how to back it up to another disk, that was pretty straightforward and I had it under control. But I've I've been losing control lately. I, and, and you guys, I think, totally tapped into what the, some of those problems are. I mean, look, join the club that everyone had. Like, I don't know anybody who actually goes through their iphone photo library and like filters through those photos and picks through them and edits them and like i don't know anybody but i know and everyone i know 
shoots way too many photos on their iPhone and thinks they're going to go back and do that. Yep. And they just never do. <laughs> and also, even if you did, even if you tried to do that, the Apple Photos app is terrible at that. Like it's it just fights you at every turn. It's so it's so cumbersome to do that with. I think the thing that I've struggled with is that I haven't relinquished control. So I'm all in on Apple platforms, and the easy and obvious answer is to just trust the cloud and trust iCloud Photo Library and pray that everything works the way it should. But as you guys were saying, you know, I also have a Micro Four Thirds camera that I quite like and I used a fair bit. I don't feel like the Apple iCloud Photo Library solution is great as soon as you start bringing in other cameras. Obviously, it's not un- unreasonable, but I don't think it's great. The other problem I have is that I really want to treat files on a file system in my house as the canonical version of my photo library. And because I petulantly insist on having that control, I'm fighting with anything else on the market today because I want what I want is just a front end into my file system. And things like Plex are starting to do that a little bit, but they're nowhere near as good as the Apple or Google stuff. And if you want to use, you know, Google Photos or Apple's iCloud Photo Library, then they're really meant for you to relinquish control and treat the online stuff as the canonical version of your library. And I just don't want to do that. And so it's definitely a self-created problem. If I would just allow myself to not be such an old man about this, it would be a lot easier. But these pictures are so important to me that I don't trust any other company on the planet, even Apple, who I trust with everything I still don't trust them with my photos because if I somehow lost these or something happened to them, I would be beyond devastated. And so that's why my whole system, which I'm not going to go into here, is so convoluted. That, and I don't think I did a good job explaining it on ETP, but nevertheless, it is still convoluted no matter how good or bad a job I do explaining it. And it's because I I refuse to relinquish control. And I wish that I could either get over myself or somebody else would make something that works better for me. Because it's what Marco said a minute ago. I end up patching together a little bit of this, a sprinkle of that, and it's just it's just a mess. Aside from just the confusion of using the Apple system, I, I've got to say that editing is in processing it and making visual changes to the photos, raising the exposure, changing the white balance. Doing any of that with Apple's tools is terrible. I I don't know why their algorithms for, say, exposure is the best example. If you take a few different top iPhone apps, so VSCO being one that I, I love, that's what I typically use, or Lightroom, and then the Photos app, and you just compare what happens as you brighten the image. The way that Apple does it, to me, is completely unacceptable. Like, I would typically prefer the darker one. It It has this way of just flattening out the image as it gets brighter, the the way that the contrast is represented just completely shifts. And if you do that same change in VSEO or Lightroom, it looks beautiful. It can make the image look so much better. So for average users that I'm not expecting to go out and pay for Lightroom, like that, that's not, not an option. And if you go out and download VSEO, now it's not integrated at all into any kind of workflow. You're editing them in a third-party app and then what, like re-exporting them out and trying to sync them. Meanwhile, if you do what Apple tells you to do and edit within the app, you're getting really substantially worse results in, in your image editing. There's much, much better software out there. And I I don't know how it's taken this long for them to not, uh, I don't know, buy one of these smaller apps or a lot of other companies have solved it. And it's it's been really frustrating to me that Apple 
is still so far behind on that. And so is Google and all the other all the other integrated stuff. You really have to get third-party stuff to do nice image editing. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And like in like a PC or Mac environment, you have a lot more options of how you do this and how you integrate them into your workflow, and it's a lot less clunky. On the phone or on an iPad, you really don't have those options. You can either, as you said, like you can either use Apple's editing tools, which I agree are not very good. I also find them incredibly unintuitive and just cumbersome to use. But also, you can you can either do that or you can have these third-party apps like VSCO, but they don't integrate with with the camera roll as well. You like the, the, you can't just browse your whole library and save and and be done. Like it's it's clunkier than that. Lightroom's even worse. Lightroom is like you have to like import and export like from Lightroom to the library. It's it's horrendous. Yeah. And I, I, I would love so much to have like the Lightroom desktop experience on mobile, but that just doesn't exist that way. It's, it's much more cumbersome in practice. And again, you, in order to use that, you have to have their cloud and their storage. And like, as soon as you're not all in on one company's ecosystem, everything gets surprisingly cumbersome surprisingly quickly. Yeah, the only time I was happy with it was when I leaned completely on local Lightroom. And that only lasted for a couple of years, and now everything's changed. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the, the time for that has passed. Now we now we're in an era where we all want everything to be synced and to be available everywhere and to be editing on multiple devices. And it took Lightroom a long time to offer anything in that in that realm that was that was worth anything. Uh, they finally have now, and we don't want it. Yeah, and I can't recommend everybody go pay for it. That's another thing I was taking for granted. I'm like, yeah, just use Lightroom. Oh wait, it's quite expensive. Like I I just know I'm always going to have a Adobe subscription because it's part of my work, but most people definitely are not. So guys, I really appreciate that you came on the show. And there's all these other conversations I referred to. There's all these blanks that I left out there. They are on ATP and I'm going to put links in the show notes to those episodes. So uh, if you want to fill in the conversations that we had here, you can go listen to them now. Thanks again, both of you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.